The message I have today is one that's very close to my heart. Um, in many ways, it's become the life message for me and my dear wife, Sherry. And I hope you'll indulge me just a bit when we get to certain parts of the message as I use certain incidents in our lives as illustrations of what I believe is a very important message for Christians. Um, we live in a time where suffering is unbelievable. Uh, pandemic globally, which has exacerbated worldwide persecution of Christians. There's cultural dissolution, especially in westernized countries that troubles us, which bleeds over into the churches and our own dear movement, the Southern Baptist Convention, where strife and confusion abounds, and certainly personal pain seems at a premium now, digitally magnified, where we're aware of evil and suffering around the world, and of our friends. And it's overwhelming, in fact, at times. And the Bible, I believe, unlike any other religion or worldview, gives us answers intellectually for these kinds of deep problems, the deepest problems humans face, but it not only gives us intellectual satisfaction, it gives us heart satisfaction because it's about a person who alone can solve our problems, who loves us and has demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he gave his beloved son. So, one of the greatest crises that we see in the Bible is in these three chapters of Isaiah 36 through 39. It's like an historical hinge, which is unusual because Isaiah recedes in the back of the story. He's there. But Hezekiah, the great king, is at the fore. He is truly a great king in Israel. He is listed often with the likes of both David and Solomon. Uh, he is in many ways the hoped for greater David, but as this is a hinge in, in Isaiah's prophecy, it's also gonna reveal some of his weaknesses which we won't have time to talk about today. A greater David would be needed, thank God, for the suffering servant revealed in Isaiah, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus. But the way Hezekiah handles one of the greatest crises in biblical history is quite remarkable. It's, uh, it's Hezekiah at his greatest. So, Isaiah 37, 14 and 15 is our text. It is the text which in many ways I want to highlight today if, I, if the Lord will help me. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, read it, then went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Well, what in the world is going on that a letter would lead the great king to go and have his personal worship session, perhaps down on his face, 
reading the contents of a letter that is bringing him to this crisis moment in his life and in the life of the people of God. I would submit to you that the crisis was one of biblical proportions precisely because God's promises were at stake, whether the promised seed through his people would still be coming, as often we see in the Bible. If the people of God are wiped out, the promise of God would seem to fail. And here's what we see if we back up to the beginning of these hinge chapters, chapter 36, verses 1 and 2, you'll see a very simple description of what precipitates this action on the part of Hezekiah showing how brutally difficult this crisis was. 36 verse 1 says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Sennacherib was the King Kong boss of all the world powers in his day. It's fascinating to look at the history, the archaeology, his annals, the descriptions. Just do a search or read Bible commentaries and dictionaries. This was like having... Uh, all the world powers come down on you at once, and all the fortified cities of Judah had been conquered except for Jerusalem, where Hezekiah reigned. Then the king of Assyria sent his ro royal spokesman along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. That's what starts the crisis. And there is now a situation in which a letter will be delivered in the next chapter, and the contents of this letter are what boils down to the real crisis. Yes, there are massive armies. Yes, the people of God seem on the verge of destruction. And now Hezekiah and the royal city itself in the same predicament. But the real problem for him, them, and you and me is what happens in our hearts and minds. And that's what he was dealing with in this letter. And I want you to hear the kinds of things that were in this message from the king of Assyria, this letter from Hades that has a message which would rattle the heart of anyone and the kinds of things that are in it are the kinds of things you and I deal with in spiritual warfare all the time, the world of ideas which bombard us. That's where the real crisis is involved. So listen then to the contents the kinds of things that were in this letter. Look with me then at chapter 36, verses four and five. The royal spokesman said to them, tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria, says this, what are you relying on? You think mere words are strategy and strength for war? 
All right, think with me for just a minute. The power of just this first statement. Mere words. What kind of tough guy are you? You're full of hot air. Maybe you're a leader in a church or just a lowly husband or a mother trying to lead your children. But in the time of crisis, look, you're surrounded with difficulties way too big for you. You can't handle this. Quote all the Bible verses you like, but you're a fake. Just imagine what the kinds of words Hezekiah would have been hearing inside the city as they realized the predicament they are in. People who had been friends, people who are indeed believers in the same God as Hezekiah would be beginning to doubt his leadership as well and the predicament they're in is maybe his fault. You talk a good talk, you've told us that we're safe and now look what we're in. Notice verse five and six. The spokesman of Assyria says, who are you now relying on? So he's gone from what to who are you now relying on that you have rebelled against me? Look, you're relying on Egypt. And he goes on and compares this political alliance, this human help to the equivalent of trying to have a walking stick that's sharp and pointed that when you lean on it, all it does is stab your hand. Can you imagine this doubt going through the mind of Hezekiah and the people of God as they're hearing this? Look, you don't have any help at all. You're just, you're in a terrible bad way. You've been looking for your rescue from your friends in Egypt and look what it's got you, nothing. And this happens sometimes to Christians. Your friends let you down in your darkest moments. You feel like maybe there's no help at all when you're only looking down. Notice verse seven, the kind of thing that would have been in the letter. Suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar. This really cuts. Can you imagine what the people of God are thinking? Hezekiah was great precisely because unlike his father and then later his son and grandsons, he tore down the false altars. He tore down the idolatry in the land and did stress as God stressed in his word, his prophetic word, that this was the place to worship me. And now the place where he had stressed it is right there under attack. And what good is it doing them? Maybe Hezekiah, unlike the others who had been leading us and their traditions, which hadn't brought us to this kind of predicament, maybe they were right and Hezekiah is wrong. Maybe way down deep inside, he's really not a superhero spiritual giant. How about verse 10? The spokesman said, have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, attack this land and destroy it. This is really a low blow, but believe me, as you well know, the devil will hold no punches back if he can undermine us in our hearts and minds. The doubt now is, Maybe you don't really know what you have done specifically wrong to deserve the place you find yourself in, but clearly God is allowing it. 
Verse 16, don't listen to Hezekiah for this is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me and surrender to me. Then every one of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree and drink water from his own cistern. Imagine the doubt now. Wow, all we gotta do is surrender, be a good citizen, and all that we dream of for our families and our lives will be good again. Talk about massive doubt. The best response might just be to surrender. And then the bottom line in verse 18, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? That's what precipitates Isaiah's response where he spread out his burden before the Lord. Will God rescue us or not? Well, it's not just what we think about it, but it's how we respond based upon how we think about the crises we inevitably face. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's inevitable, it's a promise. So what do we do about the challenges? Could he call upon another earthly political alliance? Doesn't look like that'll help. Does he surrender? Does he get all the men together and say, let's just fight to death, that's better? Does he do nothing, go back to bed? What does he do now? And I would suggest that these are the kinds of challenges you and I face on a regular basis. How many times are all of our options just not enough? That when we really think about it, the pressure we face should actually bow us down and stop looking first to other means for our help. I wanna share with you here what I alluded to earlier, a crisis a crisis that my wife Sherry and I faced 20 years ago when I was diagnosed with terminal cancer called multiple myeloma. If you're not familiar with it, it's a lot like leukemia or lymphoma. It's a blood cancer, so-called. And I was told it's inevitably terminal and that, you, that I would have about three years to live. Now you're wondering, he may look dead, but he doesn't seem to be dead. I assure you that far as I can tell, I'm still here, although it seems quite remarkable. But this was an incredible event for me. And one of the first things that I went through was the battle of the mind. What am I thinking about this? How should I think about this? One of the first things that happened was the way people prayed for me. And I listened to theologies of prayer in the way people prayed for me. A leader I would not identify, but one whom I love and who is a good friend in front of other great Christian leaders, a number of leaders, in fact, uh, thoughtfully prayed for me. And as part of the prayer request, a young woman who'd been injured in a car accident was prayed for as well. And as he prayed, he prayed for the young woman's healing, even though it was a serious accident. And when he came to Ted Cable, who's 48 years old with a terminal cancer, he prayed something to the effect of, Lord, please comfort Sherry and, and Ted's children, their children, 
and just, and just bless them and be with them during this. I kept listening. I was waiting for, and Lord, heal him. And it dawned on me that maybe the Lord can only, maybe there's a sort of a statute of limitations on how old you are before he can heal you. Or I decided perhaps if it's just a car accident, the Lord can heal, but he can't heal if it's somebody's, if somebody's told it's a terminal cancer. That was just the beginning of the battles going on in my mind. I had other well-meaning people pray for me or give me advice about this. For instance, I call this the crushed rose prayer. And both of those instances early on were sent to me in letters. And they were friends and former Christian leaders that I had known um, who are not now with the Lord. But they were of this effect. Ted, as you go through this really dark time where you don't feel the Lord's presence at all and he's as far away from you as he can get and you are being crushed under the weight of this disease, be like a rose that releases its fragrance. Release the fragrance of Christ as you're crushed. And I thought, you know, theologically that is right on, but that sure ain't what I wanna hear right now. That wasn't the most comforting thing. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it may not be the way you should counsel someone at the moment when they're hurting. Another one, and I'll probably step on everybody's toes at some point. I may get to your version of praying. But the second one was, who knows if it's answered kind of prayer. This is a standard Baptist prayer, so let me be sure I offend everybody here. I'm not talking about where you say, Lord, your will be done, where you're surrendering your heart and saying, I don't know what you're going to say, Lord. I don't know the answer to this. I'm willing to do what you want. Our Lord Jesus said this at his greatest moment in the garden, a moment of suffering. But notice Jesus also prayed, if there's a way around this, this cup can pass me, please. And the people that would just pray for me, Lord, just do your will for Brother Ted. I found that the strangest prayer. How would you know if whatever you're praying is being answered? It wasn't me surrendering my heart and will. It was them saying, whatever. At least that's the way it felt. Another one that's very helpful, I'm sure you'll appreciate it. I call it the it's your fault kind of prayer. Some of these were uh, kinds of charismatic friends who said to me things like, you know why you have that? It's because you call it your cancer. Stop calling it your cancer. And I thought to myself, well, is it yours? Who, how do I describe it? The cancer that somebody has that they're, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Some made it a medical thing. If I just balance my blood and have the guy that comes to town with his little blood kit and measures whether it's too alkaline or too acidic and you're eating too many tomatoes, you'll be healed. And I had multiple Christians tell me that if I would just buy supplements from them, many people they knew were being healed of cancer and they were so mad at me that I wouldn't buy them. I thought, well, thanks a lot. This is really comforting too. There was another one that I called just, it's done. It's when a person called me on the phone who didn't know me, supposedly to help me with a medical issue with the doctors and insurance. This lovely Christian asked if she could pray with me. 
And I said, of course, and she prayed for 10 minutes. She cast out every demon of possible ancestry related to anything ever in my lineage and genealogy, and then the cancer was cast out. And then she said goodbye. She never helped me with my insurance, and I realized it's because she didn't think I needed any help now. I, I was good to go. And I told my students back at Southwestern in those days, and it was a lot easier when it's just a classroom lecture, but before this cancer experience Sherry and I went through, I um, would go through the issue of miracles and how to think about these kinds of things. And I said, look, if you ever hear that I have some terrible disease, and this was easy to say again, because I didn't have one at the time, I said, pray for me like a charismatic. And what I said is, I don't mean the wacky kind, like the kind that make you feel guilty or nonsense stuff, I just mean pray for me that God would heal me. And then if God doesn't want to heal me, that's his business and that's okay. And if you don't want to pray for your loved one when they're sick and they feel that way, fine. Or whenever there's a big challenge facing you, I want you to pray for me that God would bring victory and that he would be glorified. And if he says no and he does it a different way, fine. I received letters and emails through the years from former students that brought tears to my eyes. And all I would say is, Dr. Cable, I am praying for you like a charismatic. And I had people say to me, I now have children, and every night before we go to bed, we're praying for you like a charismatic. Don't tell the rest of the SBC we've got a guy like that at Southwestern, but that was one of the most encouraging things I ever heard, and yet what we went through didn't feel very encouraging. In fact, the chemotherapy, some of it experimental and all sorts of it for the better part of a decade brought on chemo brain, a famous or infamous side effect. And I suddenly found myself that which I prized most, which was my mind, my ability to think and write was, was escaping me. And we call it our lost decade. It's a, it's a decade of tears. Let me move quickly then, and I'll come back to this story to wrap up in just a minute, our personal story. Let's look at Hezekiah's response, which we started with. He spread his burden before the Lord. Notice how he settles his heart first by fo focusing on God and his greatness first. Isaiah 37, 16 Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, not Assyria. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Then, then Hezekiah agreed in his prayer with what the enemy said that was true. That which he knew was true, he didn't whitewash it, sugarcoat it, he brought it before the Lord. He spread his burden before the Lord. He assessed his situation, but he did not doubt that God could indeed deliver. Notice verse 18, Lord, it's true the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made from wood and stone by human hands. 
And notice how Hezekiah dealt with the lie. Spiritual warfare, of course, will use truth mixed with lies to get us to think and to respond in our hearts the wrong way. You may not know the outcome even on how to pray about certain things you face because there's no clear biblical principle or teaching. But you can always do what Hezekiah did and it's the right prayer. He focused on God's honor. Notice Isaiah 37, 20. Now, Lord, our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. Well, I learned during our time a lot of stuff. I finally, I finally learned why some of the books in the Bible are there, like Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament. I learned deep, painful lessons about me that I didn't want to learn. And you say, well, you sure don't have a lot of evidence that you've come a long way. Well, you should have seen me before. God worked on me during this time, and it was painful. But maybe the biggest one is that I learned I was utterly weak. And the temptation from when I was a younger Christian leader was to think, you know, I'm in pretty good shape, Lord, at being your man. If I need some help to get your work done, I'll call on you. Now, you would never say that as a biblical theologian, but that's how I felt. Now, all of a sudden, I found myself in the place of the opposite extreme and sin of saying, Lord, I am so weak. Surely there's no way you can do this. That was the temptation I felt. And those are our two extremes that you and I face. We should be like the apostle where he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice now the Lord's response. And by the way, it's a very bad idea to mock the living God. I mocked the living God before I was a Christian. And if you hear me and you are not a Christian and you think this is silly, beware. If God in his mercy will use you as an example of his kindness like he did me and saved me, then you are blessed, but you are in tremendous danger. But notice how the way the Lord responds is so incredible. Chapter 37 of Isaiah, verse 21 and following, the Lord says, because you prayed, I don't know what your theology of prayer is, but the Bible says, because you prayed. What an incredible gift that we, the weak and sinful, can join with the living God and participate in what he's doing in the world. And the very first thing God does is speaks to Sennacherib. For verses on and on, he says, you kept talking about, I did this, I did that, but you are speaking against the great I am. I was the one that dictated what was going on, not you. And then the Lord promises rescue for Judah. He will protect his honor and his plan for worldwide salvation gospel through his great servant, David, meaning the true greater David to be revealed more fully even in the latter chapters of Isaiah. And then supernatural deliverance 
185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian army are killed. And then with incredible irony, Sennacherib goes back home without defeating Jerusalem. He's in his own God's temple where he should be safe, supposedly the toughest God and the toughest great king in the place of safety worshiping and his own sons murder him. Well, the Lord is kind and good to his people even when we can't see it. If we just trust him and we'll spread our burdens out before him. I want to just share with you as I close that after about a decade of these medicines, I, um, I, I was being so beat up by the medicines that my doctors allowed me to get off of them for a while to see what the cancer would do. I'm going to switch to something else and give you a relief from those side effects. And the cancer went to sleep. Uh, basically, my doctor told me two years ago this month that he thinks I now have this amazing 1% chance of it relapsing per year. It could come back. Maybe this is a practice run for when the real thing comes if Jesus doesn't inaugurate his reign first. But what I learned from this is that the Lord is faithful. And I prayed during these periods of time um, prayers of honesty where I said, Lord, I'm nothing, I am weak and you are everything, and I have nothing I can bargain with, and I'm depressed, I'm unhappy, I don't like anything about this, my life hadn't gone the way I anticipated it would, and so on. If you want more, I could make it worse. It wasn't a gigantic spiritual, oh, I feel so great, I feel happy that I'm getting to suffer for Jesus. It wasn't, I didn't even feel like I'm suffering for Jesus, I just had cancer living in a first world country with great medical care. And God in his mercy has given me extra time to see his goodness in the land of the living. But the question is, will he always deliver us this way? No. I could die tomorrow. That's fine. You may die before me. It doesn't matter because we always win. We may find ourselves in a similar situation with the three Hebrew young men in the fire, when Nebuchadnezzar said to them, worship my golden altar. And they said, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar? We're not even gonna give you an answer. If God, the God we serve, you say he doesn't exist. If he does, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue you set up. And so I would like to close with this thought for you uh, today, and I hope that you'll continue to challenge me. We're going to face trials, but we always win. There's no outcome in which we don't win because we know the end now. And we read it in the Bible and the victory that our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in his work on the cross, his resurrection, and is now placed before the Father as our total advocate. You know how there are people, thank God for them, who in your deepest moments of pain are the ones you want to talk to. 
They're just right. They're the kind of person that doesn't make you feel guilty. Maybe they've been through it, but they don't act super spiritual. They're funny, they're real. Those are the kind of people that you wanna to talk to. Well, why don't you and I realize that's the way the Lord is. The Lord gives them as the gift. They are imperfect gifts, but he wants us to come to him and spread our burdens out before him. We can't lose. He is just that great kind of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. No matter what may come our way, and it will, that you are Lord and that your church will be built. The gates of Hades will not stand against it. The good news of Jesus will continue on. Your faithfulness to us and our children and our children's children, if we know you, will remain. Your promises are true, O Lord. And we pray you'll cause us to remember, remind us that when these times come, that we will spread our burdens out before you and trust you and seek to honor you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.